If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. Hey, what's up, folks? My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dad Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to tune in today. I I hope as you're listening to this that you are safe and healthy and that your family is safe and healthy. Uh, I wish you guys the best. I know this COVID-19 pandemic is is difficult for all of us. Um, I appreciate the sacrifice that everyone is making to stay home, to help flatten the curve, to help protect people like my oldest son who are immunocompromised, uh, people who are living with HIV AIDS, fighting cancer, um, the elderly, people with underlying health conditions, as well as the, the people who are risking their lives every day to take care of those who are infected, the, the doctors, the nurses, the techs, the staff, um, the, the janitors, the first responders, the cops, everybody who is involved in keeping us safe. We stay home to protect them as well. So please continue to do so. It's going to take a while. This is not going to be a sprint. It's a marathon. But if we do this right and we all do our part, we'll get through this. So I just wanted to say that before we get started. Okay. What I wanted to do today was remind everybody that April is Autism Awareness Month. Now, I know that that's sort of flown under the radar for obvious reasons, and I get it. I'm not super concerned about it this year because I'm very distracted with the COVID-19 stuff and keeping my kids safe. However, I wanted to devote some time to discussing some autism-related things. And to do that, I have the perfect guest. Uh, her name is Alicia Halliday. She is the chief science officer at the Autism Science Foundation. She oversees all of their uh, science programs and uh, portfolios. She previously served as the senior director of environmental and clinical sciences at Autism Speaks. She holds a PhD in psychology from Rutgers University and completed a postdoctoral uh, fellowship in pharmacology and toxicology at Rutgers as well. Um, I had a conversation with her last week. I think it was last week. I don't even know what day it is right now, to be honest with you. So recently, like in the last seven days, (laughs) uh, I had a conversation with her about a number of autism related things. One, we talk about the fact that the CDC has released the new statistics for autism for this year. And uh, we go over the numbers, talk about what they mean, how they impact uh, the community and what it means going forward. We'll talk about sort of the trend that we're seeing uh, with the numbers. And we also talk about COVID-19 and how the lockdown is affecting autism families. Uh, in particular. And uh, at some point towards the very end of this, uh, Emmett, my youngest, 
decided that he wanted to take over. And so uh, he came in, he sat down and had a conversation uh, with Alicia for a little bit. And uh, I'm going to leave all that in because it was a lot of fun. So uh, I appreciate you guys again taking the time to to listen today. Uh, I'll play this for you in its entirety uh, following this commercial break. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Uh, and we're back. And uh, Alicia is with us today, as I mentioned. She is the Chief Science Officer at the Autism Science Foundation. Um, how you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> surviving. Surviving. <laughs> we're um, all just surviving. That's, Don't worry. I, I'm, I'm telling you what, it's everything is crazy right now. Um, can you give us a little bit of information about who you are and what you do at the Autism Science Foundation? Sure. So I am the chief science officer at the Autism Science Foundation, and that means that I oversee our science portfolio, which includes everything from the trainees that we fund to the projects that we support, interactions with researchers, um, and connecting families with um, science and actually explaining the science in ways that people can understand, or at least I hope I hope to do that. So um, we, we kind of focus on science at the Autism Science Foundation. So um, it makes sense for me to, to oversee that part of the organization. Very cool. I, I spoke with Allison a couple months ago. Okay. It yeah, also, it yeah. All, it all sort of everything. I don't even know what day. I know. What is <laughs> I know. Nobody. Thursday. No, today's Wednesday. It's today Wednesday. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, there's no, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing that sort of differentiates each day anymore because like therapy for the kids would always help. Like I knew Tuesdays and Wednesdays were therapy, mm-hmm. but now, it, you know, and then Thursdays and Fridays all had our own unique routines. And now it's like total chaos. Um, well, I guess one of the things that we wanted to talk about was, and, and I think it's probably been largely drowned out by um, the COVID-19 stuff. Uh, the CDC released new statistics for autism. And I was wondering if you could uh, kind of go over that with us and and maybe tell us what the numbers are and what they mean. Sure. And it, it, there's definitely reason why the numbers have been overshadowed, right? Because um, rather than, than thinking about how many people have autism, we're all focusing on the needs of the families that have autism in their family, kids and adults. And um, so it's sometimes those numbers seem meaningless. But when we get out of this, and we will, we're going to be able to use the numbers to maybe kind of push for different services and advocacy in different areas. So um, the CDC last Thursday released numbers for eight-year-old kids, and that's what's been traditionally used in the numbers for prevalence over the past couple decades. So when they count the number of people with autism, they count eight-year-olds with, without, with autism. And they found that compared to two years ago, the number went up from one in 59 to one in 54. So that's a 10% increase. Um, a couple of years, they also started looking at um, four-year-olds with autism. And um, that number also went up by 10%. So that's kind of the dark news. Um, but the, the bright news is that part of the reason, not all of the reason, but part of the reason why um, we're seeing a jump in the numbers is because kids are getting diagnosed earlier. They're finding that um, now instead of 77%, almost 90, close to 85% of kids are identified before three years of age, which is good news. And then also, um, there has been some success in closing the racial and ethnic gap. So um, African-American children were traditionally less often diagnosed. Now they're diagnosed as often as white kids. They're still diagnosed later, and Hispanic kids are still diagnosed less often and later. But there is some progress in closing that gap. Um, I think the good news is, is that um, a lot of states, or at least the states that, that are involved in the Adam study, are integrating new efforts into community-based diagnosis to get those ages earlier. Um, the bad news is, is that now we see one in 54 eight-year-olds with a diagnosis. We're seeing more and more kids with a diagnosis. And the system is not ready at all. I mean, it hasn't been ready for years. 
And now we're just seeing more and more kids coming into the system that um, is underprepared. But at the end of the day, with everything else that's going on in the world, we're really trying to focus in on that one in 54 needs more. My one in 54 needs more. And that's especially true during this current emergency, right? Where everyone is having to cut back on services, on supplies, on everything else. For some of us, those things are wants. For other people like families affected with autism, those things are needs. They're not optional. Um, so things are being cut back at a time when we're realizing the need is more, um, which, you know, creates kind of a, you know, good side that kids are getting diagnosed earlier, but then also more kids are in the system and still aren't getting what they need. When we're talking about um, autism, what are you referring to when you say the system? So I'm actually referring to the system of services that families with autism need to be receiving. So whether that's regular psychiatric visits, whether that's speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, social skills therapy, psychiatric or neurology services, um, there's still wait lists, right? I mean, we're seeing the age of diagnosis go down, but still those with autism um, have six months to a year to get certain services. Wait lists are incredibly long. I'm on a two-year wait list now for my daughter. Um, for, um, which, you know, I've just managed in other ways, but that's the system that I'm talking about is the system of service providers, doctors, um, you know, even legal help, school interventionists, um, the whole kit and caboodle, which we're seeing, um, you know, being overwhelmed housing for adults, the whole gamut. So I, I do think of the system as being pretty broad. Okay. Um, are you are you finding as as time goes on? I know the system being overwhelmed, and I and I get that. Are you finding that schools are sort of rising to the occasion in in better managing uh, educational needs of autistic kids, or is or is that because I, I live in uh, uh, I'm in Stark County, Ohio, Canton, Ohio, and we have an absolute shortage of child psychiatrists. Uh, and, and child psychologists. So there may be one, uh, I think, I can only think of one, I know there's a couple more, but one main doctor that everybody is trying to get into. Mm-hmm. And, and so it becomes impossible to, to get help. So I guess what would we need to do to address this shortcoming? Yeah. So one of the things that the Autism Science Foundation focuses on is feeding the pipeline, right? So we support pre-doctoral fellowships, postdoctoral fellows, and medical school gap year fellowships because we want to ensure that, you know, we don't have enough experts now, but we want to make sure that they're still coming in, right? We don't want the few that exist, you know, when they retire, we don't want, we want more to come in. So there's more for the community, but we also don't want when the ones that are there retire or pass away or whatever, for there to be a complete lack of a vacuum of a vacuum. So, you know, there's those two things going on. I can tell you that, um, and, and this is a, a goal of a number of different, um, universities as well and different training programs. So the government has supported a number of training programs at universities. Um, really focused on training and ensuring that um, young scientists and physicians get a broad-based exposure to um, autism spectrum disorders, developmental disabilities, and intellectual disability. So this is, you know, not something completely out there. I mean, another uh, other organizations do this as well. Um, but the lack of pediatric psychiatrists is continues to be a problem. There are countries where there are only a couple pediatric psychiatrists to serve the entire country. Um, and certainly there are different areas of the United States where, um, you know, there are, there's access, access issues based not just on, you know, socioeconomic status and ability to afford a physician, but also 
you know, how many hours do I have to drive to see a clinician? And these, you know, I, I couldn't speak especially for Ohio, but I know in places like Alaska, this is a, this is a huge problem. Um, and even like places like Eastern Washington State and Eastern Oregon, like if you're not around a large city, um, you really do have access issues. And so, um, one of the, glimmers of hope um, on this whole COVID emergency, if you want to call it that, is the um, the reinvigoration of telehealth, right? Because some individuals from rural communities, from different levels of psych- um, socioeconomic status, and even racial and ethnic minorities don't have the same access to physicians that other people do. And so for a while, telehealth has actually been a mechanism to help deliver care. Either clinicians talk to each other and share um, share information through a tele platform um, about different cases, or people get to sit in front of a computer or a smartphone and talk to an expert. Um, clearly, there's limitations to that, but you know we're now in an unprecedented time when we can really start digging in and figuring out what works about it, what doesn't work about it, how people are using it, um, what, how it's effective. It may be great for some things, but not other things. It may be great for some certain um, people with ASD, but not others. And so now, you know, if you want to look at the glass half full, it's kind of an opportunity <laughs> for us to really think about telehealth and, and using it in a productive way. And, and I think, uh, forcing the insurance companies to be on board with the two. My kids uh, see Akron uh, Children's Hospital Behavioral Health to manage medications for like ADHD and stuff like that. And they called this morning because uh, they're switching everything over to um, telemedicine right now. And uh, I was talking to somebody about that yesterday. And and one of the big issues was just that insurance companies weren't wanting to, to pay for... Um, telemedicine for whatever reason. I mean, I would think, you know, but I'm, I'm hoping that now that they're sort of forced to doing that at the moment that we can maybe move forward. Um, you know, yeah, actually. So there is, um, on the autism science foundation website, we have, um, COVID resources and one is for service providers and, um, a which is, um, uh, uh, insurance providers kind of coalition has released um, a document on what different insurance companies uh, are doing, like what are they covering and what are they not covering. And that includes the major uh, insurance coverage like Aetna, I'm in Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, uh, Capital, Cigna, you know, the different insurance plans. And it does give an overview of what they're covering, what the copay is, um, and how telehealth is being covered. In most cases, uh, telehealth appointments will be covered under insurance if the service provider is qualified, right? So one thing I've heard is actually some uh, older physicians that might be considered at risk are being moved away from seeing patients face-to-face and being moved to telehealth. They're still incredibly qualified and they would obviously be covered. But if you wanted someone like, you know, your neighbor, your your insurance company isn't going to reimburse for that. So if you want to have a Zoom conversation with your neighbor, the insurance company ain't going to cover it, but they are going to cover it um, for qualified professionals. Do you so, think that'll continue going forward? So I think it will continue. What I, what, so there was a resistance in the community before this happened to telehealth because there was a fear and, you know, it was probably, you know, now I think, well, yeah, it was a pretty rational fear that um, once insurance companies got a hold of telehealth and that, or and, and said, oh, well, telehealth works. So instead of even paying for in-person visits, we're not going to even pay for in-person visits anymore. We're just going to pay for telehealth. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't, excuse me, I don't know. But what I hope happens after this immediate emergency is over is that insurance companies look more favorably on telehealth and reimbursement. But at the same time, doctors push back and say, you can't just do telehealth and you can't just pay for telehealth. Like 
there needs to be a, um, a happy medium there. And maybe we need to work out what that medium is. But, um, I, 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 I think they will continue to play for telehealth. We just want to make sure that when we go back to be able to be seeing our doctors on a regular basis, that that's covered too. Yeah. I, I, I never thought about it like that. Um, I did have a question uh, when we talked about the shortage of pediatric uh, psychiatric professionals. Why is that? Is there, I mean, do people just not want to be pediatric uh, psychiatrists or? I think that the, so first of all, the, the pediatric psychiatrists that I know are like angels, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because they go through all these years of medical school and they do it because they want to help kids. Um, they usually don't make a lot of money at it, right? They end up working at hospital systems that, and they end up spending a lot of time fighting with insurance companies. They get a lot of training and they don't always get, you know, compensated for all that additional training that they get. Um, it is a very, very hard job. Um, and it's, you know, I think that it's, it's suffering along with a lot of specialties in, um, in medicine right now in that, um, pediatric psychiatrists are, 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 have challenging jobs. They're not always compensated for it. They fight with insurance companies tooth and nail over every single charge. Um, and, um, the good ones will work collaboratively with other, doctors, but a lot of times they're kind of forced into situations where it's like, okay, you just treat them and treat them. So um, I, I, I think that we need to do better in terms of um, making it easier for these doctors to get trained in autism. Um, we need to do it well and comprehensively, but we don't need to make it exhaustive. And we need to actually incorporate it into more medical school curriculum, right? Because most of the time they have end up having to do like multiple years of training on top of it. Um, and we also need to make it, you know, more lucrative for them, right? So, you know, these pediatric psychiatrists that are coming out of medical school with $300,000 worth of debt, they got to be able to pay their student loans back. And we need mm-hmm. to make sure that there's a system set up to do that. Yeah. I always wondered what the deal was with that, because I know when my kids were in occupational and physical therapy, um, there was a, a shortage of, um, of therapists for kids in the area. And so they were actually, uh, you know, they were waiting for new therapists to come out of school and, uh, be certified in whatever that process is, uh, in order to start, you know, filling the, the wait list requirements or, or the, you know, checking people off the list. So I just didn't know, uh, what was going on with that? But I know it's a, it's more than just my area that that's a problem. So I won't. Yeah. And it. it's not just pediatric psychiatrists, right? So you're absolutely right. When you say occupational therapists or behavioral therapists, they need to be trained. You can't just have some, you know, numbskull off the street trying to implement therapies with your child there. You need training and you need to make sure that the people that are working with your child or, or, your family member are trained appropriately and know the right guidelines. So that takes a little bit of time too. So, so that's also a bottleneck that, um, you know, I think that, that we're trying to address by balancing that, you know, guidance and regulation with, you know, ensuring that kids are in a safe environment and being well taken care of. And there is, um, and I didn't realize this in, until we went through this before, but there was, there's a difference between like, um, child occupational therapy and adult occupational therapy, you know, mm-hmm. like with what my kids went through is more play-based, you know, and it's very, very different. So, so you can't necessarily just take an adult therapist and put them with a child. I mean, th- there is a specialty, um, th- there's special training, so yeah, I, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, I mean that the needs of a child, you know, what captures their interests and how they're going, you you can incorporate some of the skills at home are going to be different than you would for an adult, and that's also going to depend on cognitive ability. Um, so yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, I think 
you know, you start out with, you know, you start out doing one, you know, you want to be an occupational therapist. And then some, you know, along the way, you kind of figure out your specialty and, and get trained appropriately. And getting the right people into the right jobs and the right places is never very easy. But these are kids, you know, lives and their futures. And so it's a little bit more you know, important to get it right than it is for some other kind of businesses. Um, one of the things that I, I've meant to ask when we were going over the uh, the new statistics um, are what what is the gender disparity now? Is it are boys still f- more frequently diagnosed than than girls, and why is that? It's still um, so an eight year old. It was um, I think four point two boys to every one girl, and in four year olds, it was three point five boys to every one girl. So it still hovers around four to one, and that's been consistent. You know, I think certain studies will kind of like wax and wane over three point five to five to one, um, going back and forth. We don't know all the reasons why boys are more likely to be diagnosed than girls. But we do know one reason is that there seems to be a protective effect in girls. So um, rather than saying boys are more susceptible to a diagnosis, now the current way of thinking is that girls are protected in some way, um, that um, actually there are a few genes that confer that protection. we don't know all the genes that confer that protection, but we know some of them. And that this gender disparity isn't actually even something that's only seen in autism, right? I mean, on the flip side, girls are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety than boys, um, even when they eliminate clinician kind of bias in it. Um, there's a number of other, you know, things that there's a gender bias. Now, that's one of the reasons. Another reason is um, girls tend not to be diagnosed until later. Um, they may, um, part of how their, their protective mechanism is going on is girls are just normally more social. I mean, this is just a thing about girls and boys that girls develop social skills a little bit easier, um, and have better language ability than boys. And Mm -hmm. so when you overlap that with autism, you may see a little bit of, um, girls being able to delay their diagnosis because they're able to compensate for some of the deficits early on, but at about eight years old and older, some of the social deficits um, or some of the social problems that occur really start to really be brought out because of, you know, everything that goes on between seven and nine years old and in girls. So, um, so those are a couple reasons. We don't really know all the reasons, but um, those, those are a couple. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, I had heard recently, maybe it was Allison that mentioned it during the last, last time we talked, uh, that that girls resilient, I guess, like you said, isn't necessarily the right word, but they they, they have some kind of maybe biological advantage or, or developmental thing. I didn't uh, it didn't occur to me like what you're saying with the social skills and uh, language and things like that. How there's there's that overlap, and they just they're at a they're able to compensate. Uh, that's part of, I mean, that, that's part of, I mean, all of these things together. I mean, they, um, even the CDC report found that, um, girls are, um, there was a similar shift in earlier age of diagnosis in boys and girls, but even with that shift, boys are still way more likely to be diagnosed than girls. And so diagnostic shift can account for, or, or the way it's diagnosed can account for some of it. Um, also, um, there has been some speculation that maybe some of the diagnostic tests are skewed more towards boys. And so some of the interests, like the questions are, does your child line up trucks? And in fact, in girls, sometimes this is, um, do they organize their shells or do they have an extensive Barbie collection? I mean, so the restrictive and repetitive interests can be different. Um, but at the same time, Girls also attend more to social stimuli than boys do. So there's this biological difference between boys and girls that we all know about and we all acknowledge it. And this is overlapping, you know, the, the, the autism. So if, you know, girls are able to be more verbal at an earlier age, then probably, you know, they're probably going to be diagnosed a little bit later than boys. But that, 
I mean, by eight years old, this, this four to one disparity hit. Um, and that's not to say that girls also don't have some unique challenges, uh, than, than boys when they end up as adults. Girls are more likely to be the victims of, um, abuse, autistic girls. Um, and they're also like more likely to have, um, challenges with, um, staying employed compared to boys. And so, um, you know, just because they're less likely to be diagnosed doesn't mean that they, you know, don't have unique challenges throughout their life. Do girls uh, present differently uh, than boys? Because like, like I have no experience in real life with, um, you know, girls on the spectrum. I, I have three boys. They all present differently than, yeah. you know, each other. And I have heard that um, part of the problem is that girls maybe present differently. And is that just another way of saying um, like what we were saying before with the language skills and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think also, so when I, so one of my daughters is on the spectrum and when the clinician interviewed me, she literally said like, does your daughter like to see the wheels on a truck spin? And I kind of thought, we don't have any trucks. Like that's not something that would be interesting. But, you know, she had like the Barbie situation was out of control. The doll situation was out of control and she would line them up and organize them and get very frustrated if anyone even like came into the room and she had like an obsessive interest in them. So, you know, that's sometimes the way that they can be different, right? Is that the type of objects they're interested in is different. Um, they also may, um, you know, have different changes. Their, their, their friendships may be different. Girls friendships are different than boys. And so, you know, I've noticed that boys' friendships are very, um, like, no, boys don't tend to hold a grudge. Mm, yeah. Girls hold a grudge. And so the friendship <laughs> dynamic is different in girls. And then you add autism on top of that, where girls may just seem a little bit odd. And early on, you know, four-year-olds don't necessarily care, but, you know, eight-year-old girls do do care about that. So I think they do present differently, but that's just based on sex differences. Mm -hmm. And so in normal, in normal boys and girls. And so luckily what's been happening in the last five years is that, um, studies are looking at both boys and girls. It used to be that, that literally I would read the literature and it said, well, more boys have autism than girls. So we just looked at boys in this particular study. And so you never really had a chance to see what the differences were both biologically and behaviorally. And now more studies are, and we actually, you know, actually require if you're going to look at, um, uh, if you're going to do a sample that you actually look at boys and girls um, differently to, to look at the, yeah, the outputs. That seems to be a more realistic, appropriate way of, of handling it. Uh, you had mentioned about um, identifying genes and it, is it still recommended that, um, you know, kids who are diagnosed with autism be genetically tested? And what are the reasons for that? Yeah, so um, I really think that this depends on the recommendation of your doctor. So there are now um, over 100 genes that are considered rare genetic variants that are associated with autism, which means if you have this rare genetic variant, you have a higher probability of, of having autism. It's, it's not an all or nothing thing. Um, there are genes, um, there are syndromes with a genetic mutation that are highly associated with autism. One is Phelan McDermott syndrome. Um, and uh, people with Phelan McDermott syndrome have about a 60 to 80% chance of having autism. Um, they also have a score of other problems. Um, I think the recommendation is, and, and certainly the newer genetic testing guidelines, right, using the more sophisticated measures of genetic testing can pick up more genes. Um, and so it, it's kind of a catch 22. Not all insurance cover, uh, not all insurance carriers cover the genetic testing, but if your child shows part of a syndrome where in fact there may be some craniofacial abnormalities. Um, sometimes there's changes in, you know, the, the skin or the ears, cognitive disability, seizures, you know, a host of um, enormous cognitive problems. 
that's probably the group that you that should probably be tested genetically because there is a possibility, a strong possibility that a gene will be found that could explain some of your child's symptoms. And the advantage of doing that, and um, we're finding this out, is that there are these patient advocacy groups popping up more genes being being detected, these patient advocacy groups are popping up like Phelan McDermott Syndrome Foundation or the Duke 15Q Alliance or Fragile X Alliance, where they provide support for families, right, with the same genetic mutation. And so they can say, you know, I have this experience, do you have this experience? Or what about this drug to treat people with this particular genetic mutation? Or what about this particular intervention? because we all have this same genetic mutation. So I think that there's there's good reasons to test for um, genetic uh, mutation. I'm not entirely sure that it's appropriate for everybody, given that it's not covered by, I mean, my insurance company wouldn't cover it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I wouldn't tell people to go out and spend the however much it is. Although I know that on your website, you have a service which I would completely um, endorse. Oh, totally where, yeah, where yeah. you could, you know, they, they will give you a, a discount um, yeah, if that's like, something that like, you. I think it's they had it down to like five ninety nine for whole right. exome sequencing. My son right. is actually well, two of my kids uh, are currently being sequenced because Gavin was di- well, Gavin has all kinds of problems, but um, he was diagnosed with childhood disintegrative disorder. Um, okay. And th- there's almost like no information out there about that. Um, along the way, all in, all in like the same year, uh, he lost his immune system. He developed this yeah. rare autonomic condition that they still don't really have a name for and uh, was diagnosed with epilepsy. He's had like the microarrays and stuff like that done and everything has always come back normal, which is incredibly okay. frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you yeah, just yeah, want to yeah, have yeah. like it a, you want to have, yeah. Like I, I want to have a name to something, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know what you're fighting or, you know, uh, what it is. And, and it's just been a, a very frustrating experience f- for us. Um, but you know, something like childhood disintegrative disorder is sort of an exclusionary thing. You know I mean? There's no litmus test for that. And there's no uh, genetic test for that. I don't think it's, you rule out everything else. And, and when every other test has been done and you, you cannot find something wrong, and he develops typically until about age three or four. And then I swear to God, it was like we put him to bed, one person, and he woke up somebody else. Uh, complete personality change, you know, and and then just all kinds of bizarre health things that started after that point. Um, I'm, I'm anxious to see if they can find something. Um, just not that it's going to change anything, but it, but it just it gives you that for me. It, it maybe answer questions that we've had f- for 10 years that we haven't been able to find um, answers to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It is, it's incredibly expensive and the system healthcare system is, you know, broken. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering if, if you guys were, I mean, he's, he's the type of kid from everything you've said that I would say he needs a genetic test mm-hmm. and still, you know, it's coming up you know, with no answers. And so um, the whole exome sequence gives you a better chance of, of, of finding something that was missed by a less, less kind of a a less, not an less accurate test, but one that wasn't looking as closely as the whole exome is. The reality is, is that it's not uncovered by insurance. It needs to be. And I think that in certain cases, doctors are really, really fighting it, right? So mm-hmm. for kids like yours, where there seems to be a syndrome of issues that doctors are saying, now, I have a strong suspicion that this is a rare genetic disorder. So sometimes insurances will cover it. Um, it's always recommended that kids with autism get a genetic test. I was ordered to give a genetic test, but my insurance company wouldn't cover it. So I was like, and my daughter doesn't have a sin like, She's, you know, cog- you know, she doesn't have cognitive disability. She, um, you know, is mainstreamed with an aid. I, I don't suspect that, that there's a syndrome involved. Um, 
So, you know, it's really kind of a discussion that every family needs to have with their doctor. If their insurance company covers it, I mean, I would say go for it. Because you may, even though if it's not a rare genetic mutation, there may be a gene involved that you didn't, didn't even like think of before, right? So I don't think it's hurtful. And now you can just do it with cheek swabs. It used to be trying to get the kids to give a blood test. Now you can do it with a cheek swab. Yeah, they're doing, they, they send us these um, little spit tubes and you, you spit into there. And I think they're, they're going to have a, a swab if, if that doesn't come back. Uh, so another way to get it done free, by the way, is um, to join Spark, which is you could go to sparkforautism.com. And it's a whole research program where they'll ask you some specific questions about your child's autism and they'll send you kits so you can spit into a kit at home and mail it back. And if there is a clinically significant finding, they have a whole system where they can get back to you and um, report the findings to you. Um, with the guidelines that are recommended. So if anyone is interested in getting a genetic analysis done and doesn't want to pay for it, um, I would, I would, you know, urge you to go to Spark for Autism. And then once, you know, uh, if a particular rare genetic mutation is found, then mm -hmm. you can be put into, you know, a, a registry with families like yours and, um, you know, hopefully um, get support that way and have a name for it, as you said. I think uh, that really sounds familiar, and I don't remember what it was called, but the Cleveland Clinic had something like that with with Gavin, um, and, and it sort of fell apart at some point. But it was they did the genetic testing for free if we agreed to um, anonymously be part of a research thing, um, and then it and then his first sample was degraded or something, and then the second oh. one never, uh, whatever. But yeah, I, I am I've I've. Uh, I've seen that. What's wrong? I just feel off. You just feel off. Well, then why don't you sit down on the bed and you can be very quiet. Okay. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. <sighs> no, I, I just feel off is a, a common thing now. And it's probably, it's definitely amplified in kids with autism. So Yeah. And, and uh, that sort of leads us into the, uh, the second part of what we were going to talk about. Um, the, the impact of COVID-19 on what you guys are doing and uh, the sanity of all the parents and all the kids who are trying to process all this. I mean, um, well, first of all, how is it impacting what you guys are doing at the Autism Science Foundation? Well, we're definitely still committed to science and research, but right now what families need is, is help. They need resources, they need advice, they need um, things uh, to help alleviate their anxiety, they need information delivered in a way that isn't completely overwhelming. Um, so we have um, kind of pivoted a little bit to making sure that resources, new resources that are available specifically for families are developed, that the scientific community stays supported during this time, and that service providers also have what they need. Um, so we have a number of resources on our website, both um, that we have developed or developed in conjunction with other families. And um, we're also going to be part of a needs assessment survey, which um, it, it hasn't been finally IRB approved, but it will be soon um, to get from the community what they need and then also how they want it delivered. Right. How many webinars can people be a part of? Um, if you have questions about whether you should visit the ER, you're not going to watch an hour long webinar. You just want some quick information. Right. Um, so what we're finding at this point right now is that, um, kids routine, the routines of the entire family are being disrupted. So under the best circumstances, um, where kids are typically developing, that's incredibly problematic. Kids are climbing up the walls. You have a family affected by autism who, where routine and structure is just so incredibly important that's being disrupted. And we're finding that, um, aggressive behaviors, disruptive behaviors, behavioral problems in general are just skyrocketing. And so we're trying to provide a, a number of resources in a sensitive way, um, about addressing that problem. They also are feeling the financial crunch, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And these are families that were financially strapped to begin with. 
um, over, you know, the cost of services um, and, you know, cost of services and access and even, you know, the, the you know, what I like to say is the, the things like, uh, or my friend Jill says, it's like, we are constantly at the iPad store. I bought, you know, a ton of different little equipments to make sure the iPad isn't destroyed. Yeah. Um, so, so there's those costs as well. Um, and then there's the emotional well-being of the parents who, you know, are scared and anxious themselves. I can tell you that, you know, I don't get much sleep because I'm constantly worried about this whole situation. And so that on top of having my kids around 24 seven and me feeling like I'm failing them educationally and I'm not doing enough for my daughter on the spectrum, you know, and all those other things is causing like an increased level of anxiety. So we're trying to, to help families deal with that increased level of anxiety at a time when everybody's anxious and guess what? The anxiety is normal under these circumstances. So you want to make sure that you're you know, providing the right level of care and not downplaying what a serious situation this is, but um, also alleviating a lot of anxiety. And um, for adults with autism, um, it's, it's, you know, this disruption in routine, especially when it comes to, you know, employment opportunities is also incredibly disruptive. I know a number of adults with autism who are really struggling right now because you know, they had a job that they went to and they did X, Y, and Z oh, every day. And, and now, now the job is gone. Now their, their, their job is gone. I mean, maybe indefinitely, maybe not. And so they're, you know, going home to live with family again. And that's, that's, you know, stressful. disrupting is stressful. Um, and I'm sure that's going to happen even with kids who are typically developing, right? If they're, they get, you know, fired or their job gets lost, they'll be moving home with mom and dad. But, this is, you know, an especially difficult time for families affected with autism because of the reasons I listed and then some that I didn't even list. So um, we're just trying to help families get through this period. We know that we're going to get through it, um, that there is, whether it's months or weeks, there is an end. We're already seeing some of a peak if we if we keep doing what we're doing, we won't have to do this again in a few months with the social isolation. So we do see an end in it and we want families to continue to be supported by science after this is over. So we're continuing with scientific research, but really our efforts is to make sure that families um, are getting what they need right now. What about the long-term effects uh, on on kids with autism um, so, of, of something yeah, like I mean, this destabilizing or disruptive? That, clearly needs to be studied more and I can't make any assumptions, but um, it's going to take a while for some kids to recover from this. Right. So a lot of kids, a lot of adults have experienced um, decompensation where, you know, their stress levels and their anxiety levels are, you know, once they were manageable, now they're no longer manageable. Um, you know, people with autism also tend to have more, issues with their immune system. So families need to be even more careful. Families that are affected with severe medical comorbidities like seizures are not going to the ER because they're afraid of what will happen if they go into a hospital. Will their kid be put in social isolation and they won't be able to visit them? And so I think um, these families are going to take, it's, it's like, it's like, okay, we may be in this for three months, but it may take years for families to fully recover emotionally from a mental health perspective and then also for their kids' behavior to be manageable again. Um, but there is hope, and that's the hope with telehealth, right, is that mm -hmm. you don't want to lose everything. You want to have something that you can do, and that's why it's really important for doctors to be continuing to help families, service providers in general, through telehealth. I'll ask you this question because I know it's important to my youngest. He's very uh, vocal about his um, dislike of homework right now. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking with a lot of parents who seem to be having the same issue. Um, like my, my two youngest, Emmett and Elliot, are, are very, they're very advanced for their age and they're very intuitive and they understand the complexity of, well, generally speaking, that the pandemic is here and that it's disrupted and that it's very serious. Mm -hmm. Um, and their view is, is sort of, um, 
there's a pandemic outside, like who cares about homework? But I think the, the bigger issue is that, you know, kids with autism, I mean, their whole worlds have been, it's like a snow globe and you just shake it up and, and we haven't stopped shaking it yet. And so they, they can't, uh, my kids anyways, can't seem to find their footing. And, and it's, I, I get the point of homework. I mean, I do, but I just, I, I wonder if we're expecting too much from our kids in, in an unprecedented situation and, you know, how, how do we, how do we address that? I mean, I'm, I'm working with them to get their homework done. Um, it's a significant challenge and it's not that they can't do it. It's that they can't focus or they're too anxious or, um, you know, even, even on ADHD meds, the anxiety is so bad. They're still bouncing off the walls. So it's like, what's the point of taking the meds if, if it's, you know, not improving their quality of life. And so I was just wondering if you have, uh, if you guys are seeing a problem with, with that kind of stuff. Yeah, we are. Um, you know, I think that the one thing that autism families should be doing right now is giving themselves a break. So I think that, um, well, everyone should be giving themselves a break, but I think in particular, families with a child with autism really need to give themselves a break and realize that things are not going to be perfect for a while, right? So maybe they don't do their homework for a week, or maybe they miss an assignment every once in a while. I think, frankly, for the past two weeks, it's my opinion that schools are just giving homework assignments to keep the kids occupied during the day. It's busy work because they're not learning it's anything. It's busy work. No. They're not learning anything. I get that they... That, you know, they're all scrambling too. I have been giving both my kids a pass with the homework. Um, I am doing things with them, um, that I think, and, you know, this may apply. This, this has worked with both my daughters, but, um, I'm trying to do things like we cut fat. I can't sew to save my life, but we <laughs> cut fabric so other people can sew them to, um, to make masks for nurses. Oh, that's very cool. My, my grandmother, when my grandmother passed away, I lost my, my knit, my ability to learn how to sew. I mean, I should have, I should have taken it before she passed away. But anyway, um, cause she was an amazing seamstress. So, uh, that, that's something that you can do to, to show, to, to show your kids empathy. Um, you know, and it doesn't always have to be about learning the, 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 the measurement of an angle or mm -hmm. what's a hexagon or, you know, algebra or whatever it is, you're teaching your kids, especially in this particular time to be good people and to learn about the world around them. And so I will tell you that personally, I haven't been sticking to the homework unless, you know, my one daughter who doesn't is on the spectrum has a little bit of higher expectations of her. And so she's always like, I need to scan this in, I need to send it to my teacher, whereas the other one kind of knows that her aid, like an aid isn't really helpful right now. I mean, the aid needs to be with her. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's okay. First of all, people need to give themselves a break. Um, we're going to get through this. We're going to have a cohort effect, which means we're all in this together, right? Mm -hmm. So all of our expectations for everybody, rather than thinking about, you know, oh, well, my kid didn't get, we're all, I mean, kids with autism are getting way less, but we're all in the same boat. And so there are going to have to be accommodations made, whether your child is trying to get into Harvard next year or whether, you know, they are, you know, third graders with an intellectual disability. Like there's just going to have to be accommodations made. And our expectations are going to have to change mm -hmm. as a result of that. And that's going to be a process over time. We can't expect us, we can't expect ourselves for as long as we've been alive to be on this constant, you know, train. And then finally the train stops and we just have to get off without looking around and just and pick up and move on like nothing footing. happened. Yeah. So yeah. I think we all need to give ourselves a break and realize that, um, you, it, it doesn't always have to be at that the homework. If it's busy work, um, my one daughter has taken to these art classes. And so I don't make her do her math. She can just sit there and do this art class because it's, you know, it's something she's now likes to do. And I think this might be an opportunity for, 
for kids to, across the spectrum to figure out, you know, what it is they like to do rather than what it is schools tell them they need to do. Well, that's very cool because you're you're still accomplishing the same goal of keeping them distracted, keeping their brains active, uh, but in a way that's less pressure. Because I think like um, we were interviewed by uh, ABC News and this is, what is this, April, well, April 1st, uh, it's supposed to air tonight at between seven and eight uh, on ABC. And, and they wanted to know about how like autism, especially these families are differences that we face, the struggles that we face being on lockdown. And so I had to interview my kids and, and Emmett was very focused on the homework. <laughs> and that's, and that's the thing he said it was frustrating is that it was busy work. He's not learning anything new. There's no teacher here to teach him. We have no online infrastructure for the school. So it's, you know, you can email the teacher and that's, you know, and so, um, I mean, the school's doing everything that they can do. Uh, but it's, it, you know, I mean, and, and I, I, like you, I, I'm, I, I just, I, I, there's so many battles that I have to fight right now. Homework just doesn't need to be one of them. Absolutely. My goal is to get through this alive, you know, and yes. safe and healthy and with, with as much sanity. That's what we all need to be doing. And, you know, um, people's kids are at different, at different levels. Um, both in ages and also what, you know, their long-term visions are like. But now is the time, I think, I know that for some kids, it's, they're really kind of stressed out because they feel like they're going to be behind once we come back out of this, if they don't keep up with things. Um, I think that it will become more and more apparent to both parents and educators that expectations need to be adjusted. And I hope that in addition to, and my, my kids teachers have been doing this. So it's pretty cool is that they've been, um, encouraging them to kind of explore other educational opportunities, whether that's drawing, whether that's, oh, that's cool. um, stuff like that, you know, art or, um, you know, some of them are like online museum. Um, some of the museums are offering online, um, tours for free. Um, whether it's, you know, making supplies for um, nurses or whether it's reacting in some other way. I think um, we're all going to find our way right now. It's just really hard. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate all of this. Um, I think it's important. Well, for me as a parent to know that I'm not the only one out there that's facing this myself. And, and, and it's important, like you pointed out for the kids that they're not the only ones struggling. So they're not going to go back to school and everybody's going to be all the way over here and they're way back here. Everybody's mm -hmm. in the same boat. So everybody is going to be behind and the school and the state and ever they're going to have to do something to help everybody at the same time. So they're not going to be singled out. They're not going to be, um, left behind or, or anything like that, which I think is stressful. To, to feel it that is, pressure. But kids with autism, I mean, they're going to feel it, right? Because those that need a lot of services like OT and like, you know, a lot of OT is, I mean, OT appointments are very hands-on, right? Mm -hmm. Like they learn how to manipulate objects. And so it's, it's, they're, they're missing out. They, they really are. I'm not going to diminish that. But I think everyone's expectations of progress are, are going to be different. And Certainly families right now with kids who have autism, who are experiencing an increase in problem behaviors are certainly struggling. And so our goal right now is to really help families in crisis that are having problems managing those behaviors as well as their own anxiety. Where can, well, again, I really appreciate all of this information because I, I know I feel lost myself a lot of times and you guys can't see me, but this is what happens after four weeks of being locked in a house with your kids, uh, and no adult contact. Um, where can they find you at? So, um, we have, a, so it's the autism science foundation, one word right on the home page. There is a bar and it says COVID resources. I think that's what it says now, but there's something that says COVID related resources. And then there's a drop down menu and we have a link for families, we have a link for scientists, and then we have a link for providers. And under the link for families, there's a number of resources that we either built or we vetted. I know that there's a ton of other ones, and I'm not saying that some of the other ones out there aren't great. Um, but what we don't want to do is just 
throw up a thousand web links on anxiety. Right. We want to, you know, have one or two where people can turn to. Um, and then people can always reach out to us at contact us at autismsciencefoundation.org and we'll try to do whatever we can. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to hook, um, people up with, um, you know, managing telehealth, right? Trying to give them advice. There will be a webinar next Friday about, um, just figuring out what to expect from a telehealth appointment and how you should be prepared, what you should ask, what you should do ahead of time. Um, how you, you know, what, what questions should you ask? What, you know, all of those sorts of things. It's not content specific, but it's, you know, to telehealth. Um, so we're, we're coming up with expert advice all the time. And so that website is constantly changing. Um, and then you can also see some of the scientific discoveries that we've, um, that, that's been possible through the Autism Science Foundation and how they're impacting families. So, um, yeah, we were definitely still committed to scientific research, but what the families need right now is crisis management. Well, I will make sure that I keep all of the, I'll put all that information uh, in the notes below so anybody can, okay. can click and, and get that information. I, I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, um, I am so honored to be on your podcast. <laughs> I'm a huge fan um, and I love your stories about your three boys and they are, um, you know, sometimes I want to cry and sometimes I laugh, you know, because they're, you know, they, I've never met them, but they sound like such, you know, unique, thoughtful, um, you know, profoundly interesting kids that, um, I would love to meet. So, well, wish granted. Cause he wants to stick his face <laughs> in the camera. Oh, okay. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Which? Uh, what's your name? I don't, I know there's three boys. What's your name? Um, Emmett. Emmett. I love that name. And how old are you? Um, eleven. Eleven. So tell me what you like to do. Um, like do video games. Not homework. Is that a good guess? No. <laughs> okay. Um, puzzles. Oh my gosh. Um. Playing games, like board games. Oh. Just spending time with my family. Oh, that is so nice. You have two brothers, right? Yeah. Do you, do you fight with them sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's totally okay. They're going to be your best friends for your whole life. It's okay. Get it out all the way now. So what have you been doing for the past couple weeks? Um... Driving everyone crazy. <laughs> we're, honey, we're all driving each other crazy. You're you're doing just fine, I think. Have you been reading? Yeah. Okay. Do you like a certain type of book? My daughter likes um, graphic novels. Do you like um, graphic novels? I'm more into like comedies, like comedic. Okay. Well, tell her what you've been reading. Huh? Tell her what you've been reading, my um, Dumb Diary or something. Yeah, Dear Dumb Diary series. I haven't heard of them that. What's it called? My my Dear Dumb Diary. Okay, I'll have to check that out. I haven't heard of that before. Well, what are you looking forward to most when all this is over? Um, Being able to leave the house. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And there's a lot of people who feel the same way. So you're, you're in a, a boat with everybody else, but you know, we're going to get through this, right? And you will be able to leave the house. Yep. And you're doing the right thing by staying inside. Yep. Well, I really like talking to you. <laughs> well, you I, I'm going to, I want to talk to you again. So next time. Um, whenever your dad, whenever you want to talk, tell your dad and we'll set okay. something up. Okay. Okay. All right. So thank All right. You. Bye you guys. I'll see. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for letting me come. Oh no. I'm so happy you <laughs> did. I'm so glad I got to meet you. All right. Bye-bye Emmett. Bye. Yeah. He's uh he's a little ham. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. 
He was just on two episodes ago, and uh, we talked for about 20 minutes about how this is impacting his life uh, as a kid and what we can do to sort of manage it. But, well, I appreciate that. He's got a big smile on his face now. Oh, good. Oh, I love talking to him. He seems like such a sweet kid. Well, well, thank you very much again. Um, I will put all this stuff in the show notes and uh, stay safe, stay healthy. And I appreciate everything that you guys are doing uh, for families like mine. And um, You too. Stay safe. So. And I know it's so hard to stay indoors, but you're so doing the right thing. I wish people of Florida would. Well, they just locked, they're locking it down tomorrow. Yeah, well. Too little, too late. A little probably. late, a little late. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Tell everybody I said I'll talk hello. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Before I uh, close things out today, I just want to take a second and thank uh, Alicia for coming on to the show and talking to us about the latest statistics, helping us understand kind of what goes into those numbers, what they mean, and sort of what it's sort of projecting as we go forward. Um, I appreciate the conversation about uh, helping our families and our autistic kids navigate this COVID-19 everything. Uh, I will have all of the information for the Autism Science Foundation in the notes below, so you can check them out. Uh, I want to thank Emmett for jumping in and and taking over for a little bit. I think he had a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate um, Alicia having the conversation that she did with him. Uh, He felt really good about it, and I, I just thought it was really cool. So, as always, you guys can find me at the Autism Dad. Dot com. My social links are at the top. Uh, Twitter is where you can find me. You can hit me up there or send me an email from the blog. I don't pay attention to the other stuff, guys, so please don't take it personally if I don't respond because I just don't pay attention to that. So if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so. Uh, there'll be a link in the description if you uh, want to do that. And again, before before I close this off totally, I just, I just want to remind you guys, please stay safe. Please follow the guidelines, stay home, uh, do your part to help flatten the curve so that we can all get through this. Uh, I know it's hard. I know it's, I know it's probably one of the hardest things that we're ever going to have to do, but it's worth it. And if we do this right and we do this well, we'll get through this. And I just want to remind you that you're not alone, that we are all in this together. Reach out to somebody in your life, check on them, call them, just just ask them how they're doing. Stay connected. I, I know we're sort of hunkered down and uh, in self-preservation mode, but just don't get lost. Stay connected to the people in your life who matter. Uh, that's about it, guys. So stay safe. I will. Uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Thanks. Bye. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strengthened connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U.com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.